0: Welcome, everyone, to our 14th virtual happy hour conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. I'm Jennifer Braceres with Independent Women's Law Center. And I'm Inez Steppen with Independent Women's Forum,
1: and it's Thursday at 5 o'clock, which means you are at the bar.
0: Today, we're going to be talking about legal issues surrounding women's sports and specifically whether male-bodied athletes should have a legal right to participate on teams designated for women. But before we get to that, I would like to raise a glass and toast to you, Inez. Um, Inez today testified before the House of Representatives on a not unrelated topic, the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, So, Inez, why don't you tell our listeners briefly how that went?
1: Uh, well, I think I got off a little easy. I was expecting a grilling from AOC, but it, it turns out that as much as she likes to complain about women being victims in America, it apparently wasn't worth it for her to show up for this hearing on the ERA. So she was absent. Uh, I had pulled out you know, my best Red lipstick to try to compete with AOC, um, but uh, she she did not show up, um, and neither neither did Rashida Tlaib, to my knowledge. Um, so some of the squad members were notably absent.
0: Um, yeah, I was very and- disappointed. I was looking forward to watching you go toe to toe with them, but you did awesome. I guess the the reason for the hearing was—is this a particular anniversary of something? Or I mean, I know that they're trying to advance the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, both through the courts and by reintroducing it into Congress. But what was what was sort of the premise of of the hearing they were holding today?
1: So a few things: one, the 50th anniversary um, of the Equal Rights Amendment. I, I think um, passing in Congress, and then uh, there's a couple different things that we're talking about. One was is sending a letter to the Biden administration asking the Department of Justice to drop the Trump era Department of Justice memo that went out telling the archivists not to inscribe the ERA after the, um, quote unquote, 38th state ratified, which would be Virginia, but only the third state in the modern era. Right. So their, their legal theory is that they only need, they only needed three states to ratify that Congress had already given the requisite two thirds um, of both houses all the way back in the seventies, um, that the extension, um, that was done by pure majority vote to 82 uh, is valid, and in fact, um, that that in some way uh, they don't even need to dissolve that deadline in order to inscribe uh, the the amendment into the Constitution. So they were asking for the um, that memo from the Justice Department and the Bill Barr Justice Department to be rescinded. And then there's a, there's a partner bill by Jackie Speier um, who uh, that that dissolves that amendment. Uh, I'm sorry, dissolves that time limit on the ERA. Um, and the House has already dissolved that time limit last time. They're rebringing it up this year. Uh, and the question is whether it'll be taken up by the Senate. Um,
0: what I think is so funny about this, though, is that, you know, any if you ask any normal person on the street about the ERA, they say, what do you mean, from the 1970s? Like, it, it, didn't that thing expire? What, like, What? They don't even think that it's a live current issue because I feel like most women and young girls today understand that they're growing up in the freest country in the world. And they're growing up in an era where women have more rights and freedoms than ever in human history. And nobody really, to my knowledge, thinks that this thing is still around or that it needs to be. I mean, it's almost like break out the bell bottoms of the glorious Steinem glasses and, and let's go rally for the ERA. It's Yeah, I
1: think these these shoulder pads on this dress, uh, even the first time that shoulder pads were in in the 80s, the ERA had already expired. So it's 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 been a while. Um, But that's really the problem with short circuiting debate like this, because back in the 70s, this seemed like a done deal. Right. Both. It was in both political party platforms, Republican and Democrat support for the ERA all living presidents from, you know, Eisenhower and Nixon to, you know, Carter, um, they all supported the ERA. Uh, and it took Phyllis Schlafly, which actually is interesting, today at the hearing, some of the folks, some of the other witnesses were trying to downplay Phyllis Schlafly's role and the role of the women who wrote letters and, and you know, baked bread at some point. They did a little political stunt where they baked bread for the congressmen right. um, in, in there or for the representatives in their states and stuff like that. Um, they really did organize to try to stop this thing. Um, and the reality is the train had left the station in terms of the ERA until Phyllis Schlafly and and the women who um, joined Eagle Forum really stood up and said, wait a minute, this isn't good for women. This right. this actually has consequences that aren't good for women. And the issues were very different because it was the 1970s. And we have a whole host of, of different issues today that the way the ERA will affect women. But um, it's interesting to me. That, you know, like we needed this full ratification period that the founders laid out for us, this full and complete process where we are engaged as a nation uh, talking about whether or not we want to add this to the highest law of the land. Um, and sure. we we're, and we're- see what the consequences would be and have a real discussion. And what's happened is like. As you say, half of America doesn't realize that this amendment is still live. They think it died in the 70s if they know what it is at all. And somehow we're inscribing it into the Constitution based on three, three states ratifying it in the modern era. And it's that's why this process is so illegitimate, it's because we haven't had time to have that conversation.
0: Right. And they don't want us to. They don't want to wake people up to it. Um, but to your point about Phyllis Schaffer, she was a one-woman show. She did really start the opposition to this. Um, But I would argue that Inez Stepman could easily hold a candle to her. So I want to play a video of you testifying so that um, our viewers and listeners can see exactly what's at stake today.
1: For example, incarcerated women have, until recently been able to rely on being housed in a prison only with other women, on the common sense assumption that it is dangerous to house female inmates with male ones in close quarters, and that co-ed prisons make women vulnerable to physical and sexual assault. But during our, uh, under our current legal protections, the government is not allowed to, and should not be allowed to, discriminate on the basis of race the way that it does by separating men and women's prisons. In Johnson against California, the Supreme Court held that preventing violence in prisons does not raise to the level of government interest required by the Constitution. If the same strict scrutiny standard were applied to single-sex prisons under the ERA, a conservative interpretation of its legal impact, by the way, women would quickly find themselves at the mercy of male prisoners. These consequences are already happening in states that are allowing male-bodied inmates who identify as female to transfer to the women's prisons, and that policy has already resulted in sexual assaults on female inmates. But the ERA could potentially make the problem far worse by extending that invitation, not just to a small percentage of people who are born one sex and identify as another, but to all male prisoners, regardless of identification. After all, quote, unquote, discriminating against men by keeping them out of women's prisons is a discrimination on the basis of sex exactly the kind of policy a plain-language reading of the ERA is intended to prevent. The same rationale could apply to any context in which the government separates or distinguishes between men and women, for example, when selecting a same-sex TSA agent to administer a pat-down at the airport. Similarly, public schools, whether on the K-12 or university level, would not be able to maintain separate bathrooms, locker rooms, or sports teams for boys and girls.
0: I think that's a good place to stop because it kind of segues into what we're going to be talking about today. But I, I like what you did there, which was to really make clear what the specific consequences would be if you elevate sex to the same constitutional standard as race. If our laws have to um, forbid all segregation on the basis of sex, which they do in the racial context and rightfully so, this will mean. All of the things that you said, no female only prisons, no female sororities at state schools, no female dorms, no female bathrooms, you know, men and women in combat equally in equal numbers, all of the things you said. Um, And I think that most people who say they favor the Equal Rights Amendment don't understand that that's what it means.
1: Yeah, um, one of my fellow witnesses was Professor Nourse from Georgetown Law, um, and she basically said, "Oh, all these consequences that you know Inez is talking about—they're—they're they're not really going to happen. The court uh, is going to carve out exceptions for these kinds of discriminations because um, that's what that's what they are legally, right? We use the word discrimination uh, in a colloquial sense to mean what the, when the court uses it, they mean invidious discrimination, right? Like um, unnecessary, uh, intentional discrimination." on its, on a, um, you know, characteristic that's irrelevant to the, whatever decision or policy is being uh, created. And, and really, I I would, I would have loved to, to get a chance to ask Professor Norris, I mean, what about, um, what about Johnson versus California, right? What about, I, I had law professors who always told me Johnson against California, you don't use the versus, you say against, um, but Whichever way you, you use that case, or this is a Supreme Court case from 2005, in which the court explicitly ruled that increased violence in the prison is not a good enough reason uh, to, not a compelling government interest high enough to defeat strict scrutiny, right? Because um, Professor Norris said, oh, it's it's not fatal in fact. There are things that that can defeat strict scrutiny. Well, I mean, we have a case that's directly on point, right? an application of strict scrutiny, and in that case the court told California even though there's there is in a, a a record that this lowers violence in the prisons you can't separate prisoners based on race. Right. So and that I, I and the, the court was right.
0: The court was right when it comes right, to I it. totally agree. But, but but what's interesting is if 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 your opposing witnesses really believe that the courts will be able to carve out exceptions, then what's wrong with the standard we have now? The standard, the intermediate scrutiny we have now is exactly that. It's one that carves out exceptions. So they, they can't have it both ways. They can't both say that, you know, passing the Equal Rights Amendment will be largely symbolic and put women in the Constitution, right? And And that it will, you know, make everything different. It's it's not gonna do both, it's gonna do one or the other. And if if it is true that it's symbolic, then we don't need it. So that, that's sort of where I come down. But I actually, I'd, I'd love to do an entire at the bar episode on the Equal Rights Amendment. Maybe we could get <laughs> Professor Norris on to answer some of these questions. Come on on, Professor Norris.
1: Wait, we're, we're waiting for you. We'll, we promise we'll be polite.
0: Yep, we'll even, we'll even buy you a drink.
1: Um. <laughs> uh. Yeah, but, but let's let's transition to, to a totally related topic, actually, here. And, and actually, a lot of the stats we're going to talk about, I, I did bring up in, in the hearing. Um, and that is the specific application of uh, this kind of interchangeability thesis between men and women to the realm of sports. Um, and, and look, in some sense, the ERA is a lot worse than what we're currently dealing with, because the admission of, of transgender athletes into women's sports, really, we're dealing with a very tiny percentage of people, right? And that still has real consequences. And we're going to talk about those consequences. It still denies women and girls opportunities that they would have otherwise had. Um, and, and it still, in some degree, makes a mockery of, of female sports. Um, but... At the end of the day, we are talking about how to accommodate a very small number of people right? who are born one sex, but they feel or identify with a different sex and want to compete under the banner of that sex. Um, The ERA is broader than that. Uh, And I made that point in the hearing. I said, look, we're already dealing with these debates. with regard to transgender athletes. But if you have an ERA, it's not just going to be men who identify as women who can then participate in women's sports. It'll be every man, however, he identifies. And who's to say that that the um you know the guy who who misses the cutoff by a you know half a second for the for the male track team. Um, uh, you know, what what is it that prevents him from joining the girls track team and being the fastest runner oftentimes on the girls' track team? Well It's a discrimination on the basis of sex that prevents him from doing that uh, in in public universities and public high schools. So um, the ERA really brings us sort of wider and makes it completely about any kind of sex segregated activity like sports. Uh, But even today, we are really dealing with both in the context of prisons, as we discussed uh, under the ERA, but also just in, in the sports arena. I think those are two of the clearest examples Uh, That, in fact, our law really does need to recognize in limited situations, hey, this is a man and this is a woman. And guess what? There are biological differences between the two and they're relevant in sports. How can they not be relevant in sports?
0: Right. Yeah, you would think that it's an obvious proposition that wouldn't require uh, data necessarily to even prove it. I mean, it's so intuitive. But the fact is, we're living in a world where, you know, the definition of sex is not clear. The definition of what it means to be a woman is being debated. Um, and people are, you know, people are raising objections to all of these things. So we felt we needed to sort of compile the evidence, compile the statistics, and, and put everything together into a report, which we did this summer. Um, there it is. Competition, Title IX, male-bodied athletes, and the threat to women's sports. This is a new report. Um, brought to you by Independent Women's Law Center and Independent Women's Forum. And in it, what we tried to do was bring together three things. The law of sex discrimination in women's sports under Title IX in the Constitution. Um, The scientific data about male-female differences and the male athletic advantage. And thirdly, the stories of young women and, and women who have been forced to compete against male-bodied athletes um, and, and explain the harm that it's caused to those, to those individuals. So we put it together in this report, um, and we, I have a copy here. We hope that it'll be helpful to people because it's, you know, it's heavily footnoted. All the research is there. Um, and we've got all the graphics to kind of e- so you can easily pinpoint, um, you know, facts and, and, and uh, you know, talking points. But we're hoping that it will be useful not just to individuals, but um, to athletic associations that are sort of grappling with how to deal with this. Um, you know, courts, policymakers, all of the above, because what we have right now is a situation where. Athletic associations are trying to figure things out and make their own policies. Some states are passing laws about it. We've got Title IX at the federal level. We've got constitutional law. And a lot of these different rules are starting to conflict. Um, So we wanted to put everything together in one place to kind of help people weed through it and figure out what the law really does say about this and, and what the facts and what the science tells us about this.
1: Yeah. And um, this is a fantastic report. I highly recommend you can find it on our uh, iwf.org website, as well as we have paper copies um, for, for folks if, if they write in and would like one. We have really nicely bound ones like the one that Jennifer just held up. Um, but But this report is fantastic. I use a ton of the evidence contained within it uh, today at the hearing. And it really lays out the physical differences between men and women, and then just starts to catalog what's already happening in women's sports. This is not a um, sort of slippery slope argument, right? That th- this is already happening. Women women are being locked out of the kind of opportunities and victories that w- they would otherwise have in the sports arena because of male-bodied athletes, because of, of uh, men who identify as women. And you know, I, I'm somewhat sympathetic. I, I know a lot of um, you know a lot of these these kids. They are um, you know they're trying to fit in. There, there's definitely an element of. of um, I'm not suggesting that every one of these these um, male athletes who then competes alongside women is doing it because they just want to uh, you know to, to to have an easier time of it.
0: Um, no, there
1: are real. There are real. Um, you know difficult struggles that some of these these kids are going through, uh, but that doesn't mean that we need to to jettison the concerns of biological females. They also have a right uh, to compete and in, in sports to win these victories. Um, and and I I, I used actually um, something that uh, a athlete named Chelsea in in Connecticut wrote in USA Today uh, during my testimony today. And, and she said, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me anymore, but uh, she said, essentially, it makes her feel sort of hopeless and that there's something wrong with her body as a woman uh, that she can't
0: compete. So so those are real. And by the way, that young woman, Chelsea, it was, was the fastest female runner in the state of Connecticut.
1: Yeah. And she missed out on a bunch of championships um, and, and scholarships and other opportunities because uh, she was competing against transgender athletes, against male-bodied athletes who blew her out of the water in a way that other females couldn't. And you know, those those opportunities matter too. We we talk about this. It's important that we talk about it in a compassionate way. But at the same time, the compassion can't be limited just to male-bodied athletes or transgender athletes. We have to have compassion for the female athletes who are uh, you know losing out on opportunities that sometimes they've trained a lifetime for uh, in, in a way that is not you know, overcomable by training extra hard or, or um, you know, running, uh, you know, more times per week. These are real biological differences between males and females that give males an enormous advantage in a lot of these sports competitions. And, and this report really lays that out. So um, I'm we also have a fantastic documentary uh, that I'm going to show you guys a clip of uh, done by our colleague, Kelsey Bolar, um, interviewing um, Cynthia, talking about her experiences as an athlete um, competing against male-bodied athletes. So I'm going to go ahead and show that clip
2: now. I had the opportunity to compete at the world championships in Malaga, Spain in 2018. I had put in so much hard work for this meet as did my teammates for Team USA. When I got to the meet, I discovered that a biological male was in my race. Not only has this happened to me, but a year later, my daughter ran her first high school race against a biological male, identifying as a female.
3: I mean, come on. It was my first ever high school track meet my freshman year, and I ended up taking second in my race next to this biological male, and I would have won my first ever high school track meet if it weren't for this athlete. I did well, but I could have done so much better and I could have won my first ever race.
2: As a coach and as a mother, seeing my daughter put in so many hours of hard work and being restrictive and in her eating, maybe passing on sweets and things like that to make sure that she was strong for her race it was heartbreaking to see that she was running as fast as she could, and still, this athlete breezed right by her. Yeah, John, go
0: ahead. Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, one of the things that I hear repeatedly from, from people who favor. Uh, allowing male body athletes to compete as women is that this doesn't happen all that much, that this is a very small subset of the population. And, you know, so the harm isn't that great. But what I would say to that is, look at this mother and daughter. What are the chances that a mother and daughter in Hawaii would both have to compete against a male bodied athlete within a year or a year and a half of each other? I mean, this may be a small problem, but it's a growing problem. And it's growing large enough that it affected the same family twice. So that in and of itself, I think is important to recognize, but it's also important to recognize that even if it only harms a few people, the harm to them is very significant. You know, we would never say in another context, well, only one person was discriminated against. So, you know, it's okay. What's a little discrimination between friends, right? And the reality is that girls and women are being asked to step aside to accommodate male-bodied athletes. Um, One of the reasons people might wonder why I constantly refer to male-bodied athletes as opposed to transgender athletes or some other term. um, And the reason is that, this isn't just about transgenders, because, as you noted uh, in your ERA testimony, states that have equal rights amendments, and and we don't have it at the federal level right now, but there are some states that have adopted their own ERAs. Massachusetts is one of them. And as a result, in Massachusetts, boys can, par- can try out for and participate on federal uh, girls' field hockey teams and girls' volleyball teams where there's no male counterpart. And this isn't just a hypothetical. This is happening often. Um, In Massachusetts, there are any number of of high school field hockey teams that have male players on them, not transgender boys or girls, just just male players, athletes who, in most cases, they're lacrosse players or ice hockey players who – you know, think it would be fun to go out for a fall sport. They, they have good stick skills. They want to try field hockey. Um, and guess what? They're bigger, faster, stronger than the girls. Now, my experience living in Massachusetts and having daughters who play field hockey is that at the beginning of the season, the girls still outplay them because the girls know the game. They know the rules. They, have, they actually have better um, stick skills. Uh, But by the end of the season, when the boys have sort of mastered the techniques and they've mastered the rules of the game, they they can really give the girls a run for their money. It's very interesting to watch. Um, And I actually asked my daughter, who, who played against several boys during her senior year of high school. You know, what do you think of this? And and her reaction was, I don't really mind playing against them like I think I can go toe to toe with them. But if they went to my school and took a spot from me or one of my friends, I'd be furious. And the fact is they will take spots from girls because when they try out for these teams, they will be better than some girls, not all of them, but many of them. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to bring up one of these comparisons
1: that's in the report, right? So let me just throw this up here real quick. Um, You can see this is uh, Serena Williams. Uh, She's obviously – regarded as one of the all-time greatest tennis players, and yet uh, the 203rd ranked men's player uh, beat both Serena and her sister Venus. So. Um, a lot of times, I think we find that okay. So if if some of these male-bodied athletes lose at one track meet, or they lose in one competition, some that a, a um, what the left would call a cisgender female beats them out one time. That that the competition's completely fair, uh, but but it isn't because you're not comparing. You're, you're talking about men. In your case, for example, you're talking about boys who have just picked up the sport, competing against girls who have oftentimes played the sport for a decade or longer and within within one year essentially mastering it and starting to surpass the girls around them um and look that's that's the reality i mean uh, i want to throw up this other uh chart from our our report here that i think says a lot right um the, the physiological differences between men and women are huge Men have more muscle mass. They have stronger muscles. They have a lower body fat percentage, uh, more stronger bones. They have denser bone mass. They have larger lungs. They have larger hearts. Uh, they can run faster, um, You know, jump higher, punch harder than, than girls do uh, across the board. Um, and that's even true for women who have the same Muscle mass and have the same, sorry, not muscle mass, the same overall mass, right? So there have right. been some studies, in, in, and we we replicate them in this report. Some studies that compare women who are the same size as a guy, right? Because um, sometimes people say, well, the women who are competing in these sports, they're not uh, they're not your average woman. They're not five four. They're more likely to be like comparatively sized to men. But even comparatively sized men and women, there are vast differences. Uh, in their ability to to do all kinds of things that are really really relevant in
0: sports so um, and all, all you have to do is co- is compare the world records of you know any man and woman in in any event swimming um, you know running all of these events you, you can go through and you can compare the records of men and women and see that you know, the, the men outperform the women every time, even the top athletes in the world.
1: That's that's really right, and and the fact that um, you know we are somehow not allowed to talk about the the girls who are being shut out of these competitions. Right for every for every girl who manages to beat out one time in a track meet, one of these athletes, um, you know, there, there's a girl who got cut for the team from the team. Right, uh, in order for that. That kind of what your daughter was saying, right? Um, there's 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 a girl who got cut from the team because oftentimes this this male-bodied athlete who just picked it up the other day uh, is still able to, to blow out some of the the girls who would have made the team and then been able to to sort of grow their skills, their athletic skills. I mean, look, I, I was also a, a big sports person in, in high school and beginning of college. I I played basketball, I played soccer. You know, I, I ran track. Um, there's no there's no comparison. We used to scrimmage the, the guys varsity team. Um, you know, when, when I was in when I was a basketball player in high school, we used to scrimmage over the summer in our offseason. We used to scrimmage the guys um, and there was just no comparison. No. And It's not just size and strength. It's even it's it's fast muscle fibers. It's, it's hand eye coordination that the girls just didn't have. I mean, I was guarding Jeremy Lin in high school. Because we played the same position in my high school, right? Like, this is ridiculous. (laughs) Obviously, I'm not comparatively talented, even within the realm of female athletics, as Jeremy Lin was. Um, But we played the same position. This is ridiculous, right?
0: Even the women who are at the top of their game uh, cannot compete against the men who are equally at the top of their game. And we, you know, my family, we billeted a female ice hockey player several years ago. She was training for the Olympics, um, and she went to the Olympics in Sochi with the uh, women's national team. They got a silver medal. She lived with us for nine months. And during that time, the team prepared for their you know stiff competition at the Olympics by scrimmaging boys' high school teams, top boy high school teams, but nonetheless, boy high school teams. They didn't prepare by playing against the Boston Bruins. I mean, they just didn't because it's a totally different league. That's the bottom line. Um, So, you know, when you allow male-bodied athletes, transgender or not, to compete against women, um, you are taking away opportunities for women to succeed. You are taking away opportunities for women to play. And let's not forget, Title IX was passed to give women and girls more opportunities. Most of these high school field hockey and volleyball teams, for example, were instituted after the passage of Title IX when schools were told they needed more athletic spots for girls. So they started these teams. How ironic that those spots are now being filled by boys.
1: Yeah, it really is. It really is ironic. Jennifer, do you want to introduce our, our guests who just popped in backstage?
0: Yes, um, I'm really excited to let you all know that we are going to be joined by an athlete who has faced male-bodied competition. Um, her name is Selena Soul, and she's here today with her attorney, I believe, Christina Holcomb. Is that right? Yeah, let's bring her up. So we have we have Christina so far. So hey, Christina. great to meet you, Christiana, Yes, Chris or Christina, Christiana, Christiana. Nice to yes. meet you. Great to have you here. Great to Um, be here. Now, so tell us just briefly, just set the stage with what happened to your client um, and tell us her story briefly. Yes.
3: So Selena has competed against male individuals all four years of her high school experience, and she lost out on medals, on advancement opportunities to the next level of competition. And it was interesting because over the course of that time frame, these two male high school athletes won more than 15 women's state championship titles and set 17 new individual meet uh, records, records that my clients fear that they'll never be able to break. So Selena and her mom started to speak out, they talked to school administrators, they they circulated petitions, they tried to make a change so that they could protect the girls category and ensure that only biological females had to compete against other females, but no one would listen. And so as a result, they felt like they had no other choice but to try to protect her rights, first through a Title IX complaint, and
0: then secondly, through a federal lawsuit. Now, what's interesting, I think, is there's such a hodgepodge of rules about this. So at the Olympic level, for example, if you are a male-bodied athlete that wishes to compete in the female category, um, you have to you know, declare your identity as a woman. You have to, I believe, stick with that for four years. Um, And you have to undergo, you know, some sort of of testosterone suppression and and hormone therapy. Um, High schools, not so much. There are 19 state athletic associations that allow male bodied athletes to compete, even when they've taken no steps to transition. Um, Connecticut, I believe is one of those. And I noticed uh, looking and researching for this report. I looked on the ACLU website and some of these other websites. They very strongly oppose any policy that would require them to take action. They think it's, you know, it's, it's stigmatizing for the school to ask them to prove that they're going through transition or that they've taken any steps to transition. Their position is a boy who says they're a girl
3: should be able
0: to walk on and compete as a girl, no questions asked.
3: Yeah, setting aside the question of whether or not testosterone suppression does anything to mitigate the male advantage, and it certainly does not eliminate the male advantage, but setting that aside, you're exactly correct that the policy in Connecticut essentially says you can be a compete on the boys' team one season, turn around and compete on the girls' team the next. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. One of the male athletes competed as a boy for three seasons, frankly, was only a mid-level male athlete, never made it to a state championship. And then two weeks later, began to turn turned around and began to compete with and train with the girls' team in the spring outdoor season, and was just vaulted to the state championship level. So, yeah,
0: it's
3: yeah, it's immensely frustrating. And again, to not to. You know, I don't want to speculate as to whether this, what this particular individual's motives might have been, but you can see that that just opens the door for all sorts of you know, fraudulent claims as well for boys who can't make it in the boys category to turn around and come in and dominate, uh, not just win titles, but potentially scholarship opportunities in the women's.
0: Well, and particularly, uh, yeah. I, I would have to say in sports like field hockey, where domestically field hockey is a women's sport, but internationally, it's played by men around the world. Um, and so you have a lot of international students coming over to American universities, boys from, you know, everywhere from Korea to South Africa to England, Spain, South America, Africa. They, they, they grew up playing field hockey. They're good athletes. They come to American colleges. Um, you know, once the law is altered to say that male body athletes can, can compete with women, what's to stop them from saying, you know, We want a spot on the field hockey team. There isn't. I mean, and that's
3: the devastating thing for young female athletes who – you know, for many of them, this isn't just about sports. Sports are really important and they do want to win, they want that fair competition. But for so many of these young women, this is how they plan to pay for their college experience as well. This is what's going to put them on the trajectory to pursue that career, to make their 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 impact on the world. And so, it's a really scary thing for these young women to face the reality that if if the female category is open up and becomes an all-comers option where any biological male can walk in, Um, they're really facing the beginning of the end of women's sports. And why would, why would girls
0: even try? And I want to be clear. That's not a slippery slope argument. I mean, Mm -hmm. anybody listening can just do a quick Google search and find articles by certain feminist (laughs) scholars who argue that that's exactly their end game, that there shouldn't be Mm -hmm. male and female categories in sport at all. This is not about transgender to them. There are people who (laughs) argue that sex segregation in sport is itself discriminatory. Um, They want to end the separation. So for anybody who says that's a slippery slope, it won't end women's sports as we know it, just do a little research because there are plenty of people who, who want it to happen. They make, in my view, the preposterous argument that once we allow women to compete with men, they will get bigger, faster, stronger and that the competition will propel them to be able to, you know, eventually over time, I guess we will evolve to be able to, to be men. And they literally really make this argument. But so it doesn't pay any attention to the science, you know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I, I want to jump in here and, and bring
1: up Christiana's client, uh, Selena Soule. And for, for those of you who are maybe just joining us, uh, Selena is a division one track athlete at the College of Charleston. Uh, But at her Connecticut high school, um, she ran track where she made all conference 10 times. She was a four time all national qualifier. Very impressive. Um, But in 2019, she missed qualifying for the New England track and field regionals by two spots in her top event. Those two spots were taken by male bodied athletes. Um, So uh, Seoul is one of four. Female track athletes that are suing the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference over this policy that allows male-bodied athletes to compete um, in in essentially women's sports. So uh, that case is still pending, um, and we're going to talk some about that case. But we're, we also want to welcome Selena and ask her, you know, what what this felt like um, running as as a woman uh, against biologically male competitors.
4: Before we get into it, I want to say that I actually transferred to Florida Atlantic University, uh, so I am now competing for them. Um, Sorry about that. It's okay. It's it's new, so I don't I don't blame you. Um, so I started competing against biological males my freshman year of high school, and I was forced to compete with them throughout all four years. And my first encounter was in the spring outdoor season of my. Uh, of my freshman year. And at the time, there was only one biological male that I had to compete against. And then my sophomore year of high school in the outdoor season, another biological male started to compete. And that athlete in particular had competed as a male for three seasons, barely even qualified for the um, boys conference meet, only made it on a relay team. And then started a couple of weeks later, started competing on the girls' team and ended up winning essentially every meet that that athlete competed in.
0: And did you immediately object? Or, I mean, what was, what was sort of the process you went through in terms of dealing with this?
4: So when it was only one athlete, I was still extremely bothered by it because I didn't think it was fair. But at that time, I wasn't as good in sprints. Long jump was my better event. So I kind of didn't think much of, you know, doing anything. I, again, didn't think that it was fair. But Mm -hmm. then once that second athlete came, I had started to become better in the sprint. So I started, you know, missing out on opportunities for better placements. And after uh, it was in my junior year, I missed out on qualifying for the 2019 uh, Indoor New England Championships in the 55-meter dash. I came in eighth place. I was one spot away from qualifying for the finals and two spots away from qualifying for new England's at the state open meet. And if those two athletes were not there, I would have made it into the final and I would have qualified for new England's. And I could have had the chance to run in a much better, much faster track, show my talents off to college coaches and possibly post a better time. So after I lost out on that, um, that was when it was the last straw for me because I had still had to go to that meet and compete in the long jump in the four by 200 meter relay. So I was forced to watch my own event from the sidelines. And that was heartbreaking.
0: And is that when you decided to take legal action?
4: We didn't take legal action at that time. Um, when the first, or excuse me, when the second athlete, uh, started competing, uh, back in, um, the year before in the outdoor season, we started talking to school administrators. We talked to legislators, the CAC, the governing body of sports in Connecticut. We talked to everybody we could to try to get them to change this policy because the current policy in Connecticut at the time was just signing off on a piece of paper, changing your gender, and that was it. So we asked them to try to fix this policy, and nobody wanted to, to do anything. They pushed the, the burden around to each other. Nobody wanted to hear us out. So we, after a few months, a few months after um, I lost out on the opportunity to, opportunity to qualify for New England's, so we ended up filing a Title IX complaint, and, and I think it was in June of that year. And then, when the complaint wasn't going anywhere, we ended up filing the lawsuit.
0: I'm curious as to what kind of reaction you got. You know, not what the legal response was, but just the human response from your coaches, the athletic association, your teammates. I mean, I know I know some other girls joined you in your legal action, but but just generally did people were people supportive of your concerns? Were they, I mean, how did they respond?
4: Most people were supportive of me. My friends and family were supportive. My my teammates, other girls that I competed against were supportive of me. But the administrators and legislators and all of that—they were not supportive at all. The CAC was not supportive. Um, My—I started getting treated uh, unfairly by um, by the administrators and my uh, school coaches, unfortunately. So I did get—I did get mostly support, but I unfortunately did get some hate.
0: And your own school coaches supported you, or did—or did not?
4: At first, they, they were supportive, but after my parents met with the school principal and the uh, superintendent, that's when everything changed.
0: Interesting. And, and so this this went on for four years. You're now a sophomore in college or, or, yeah. Yes. So tell us a little bit, or maybe maybe this is a question for Christiana, but about the status of your lawsuit. Um, where things stand as we speak. Sure.
3: Well, we filed the federal lawsuit in February of 2020, right before the world shut down. And unfortunately, the federal court used that as an excuse to really sit on the lawsuit and not not try to, to adjudicate it and reach a final conclusion before Selena graduated. So the court took about eight months to rule on a motion to dismiss and ultimately dismissed the case. And this was the reason why. He looked at it and he said, well, the two male athletes have graduated, and he looked at the girls' harms, Selena, Chelsea, Alana, and Ashley, and said that their losses didn't matter, that there wasn't any need to fix the records, there wasn't any need to give them the recognition that they rightfully deserved, um, because they were the fastest girls in many of these races. So we have since appealed that decision up to the Second Circuit, and we are in the process of briefing that before the court."
1: Um, What would you say that, that the key issues are uh, in this case, that you're you're appealing back up. I mean, what are the legal arguments you're making as opposed to some of the more uh, practical arguments that uh, Selena's laid out about how this has affected her, and then also the arguments Jennifer and I made before we brought you two up on the differences, the biological differences between men and women when it comes to uh, all those things that affect athletics, right? Strength, speed, uh, fast twitch muscle fibers, you know, bone density, all of those those really important biological factors that go into those differences. What are the legal arguments though?
3: Sure. Well, at the, at the circuit court right now, um, on the motion to dismiss, we're specifically addressing the fact that These are uh, harms that the court can remedy. The court should be able to direct the Athletic Association to properly recognize Selena and Chelsea for the placements that they should have received, for the advancement opportunities they should have received, the recognition. Because looking at the big picture here, that's exactly what Title IX was designed to provide young women, right? So nearly 50 years ago, Title IX was passed so that young women like Selena would not experience sex discrimination, not only in education, but in sports as well. And really Title IX has come to be um, considered like most closely associated with a sporting context, right? To ensure that they have a fair and level playing field for all the reasons that you that you referenced before. The physical advantages that biological males have. The science is really clear. On, The more science that's done, the clearer that this gets, that males have an inherent athletic advantage over females, anywhere from 10 to 50%, according to some recent literature. So for this reason, if we want to ensure that girls like Selena have a fair playing field and have a safe playing field as well, we're not just talking about track and field. We're talking about contact sports, like basketball and volleyball. We're talking about scholarship opportunities. If we want to ensure that future generations of young women still have those opportunities then we have to protect the integrity of women's sports and that's exactly what title nine was designed to do so we're just asking the court to enforce title nine as it was written and require school districts across the country to comply
1: it appears we lost selena briefly but um could you speak to injury i mean you you just uh, laid out some sports that Unlike, for example, track, there's going to be like direct clash between Mm -hmm. uh, physical clash between different players. And if some of those players are male bodied here, we got Selena back. Um, If some of those players are male bodied, I mean, what's what's the potential for injury um, in some of these more contact based sports?
3: It's significantly increased. So, for example, in volleyball, you know, you have a male-bodied individual who has a far more powerful spike, and he's faster, and he jumps higher and further. Uh, you, a young woman on the receiving end of that spike is at far greater risk of being physically injured than were she on the receiving end of a spike done by a female athlete of comparable ability, right? Young women are also more prone to concussions, for example. There's a lot of conversation these days related to concussions and um, the long-term ramifications of that. And the, you know the list kind of goes on and on. So I think we're just starting to really dig into the science on this, but it's yet another reason why it's so important to protect the female sex category so that not only is, is uh, competition fair, but it's as safe as it can be for young women.
0: Right. You know, one of the things we talk about in our report is that the, the World Rugby Association looked at this. They convened a panel of scientific experts they and stakeholders from all all communities, including the transgender community, and they researched this, they compiled the data, and they looked at it in a sport specific way. Um, and they determined that for women's rugby, it was not safe. Um, and so they made a decision as an athletic governing body to, to, to prohibit the participation of male-bodied athletes in women's rugby. Um, and, you know, every sport's different, but, but in that sport, for sure, the risk of injury was far too great for, for the Athletic Association to want to take that risk.
1: Um, I mean, it is interesting that they will admit that in the context of injury, right, because they don't want to be responsible Uh, for for harm to girls, but they won't admit the fact that there's an advantage when it comes to just pure competitions. For example, uh, the ones that Selena does where where it's on a track meet. So, I mean, it's on a track, um, high school track or college track. Um, So, I mean, there you don't have this direct um, sort of... uh, at least most most cases, unless something goes wrong, you, you don't have that kind of direct contact that could lead to injury between uh, two different two different competitors. But it's it's hilarious to me that they'll admit this when it comes to injury, they'll admit that men um, are bigger, stronger, faster, they punch harder, they throw harder, um, they can spike the ball faster, Christiana mentioned, right? And all of these things can lead to higher injuries among women and girls. And yet they won't admit that all those same qualities, the reason that there is disparity in injuries is, of course, because all those same qualities also make men unfair competitors with female athletes.
0: I wonder, Selena, have you talked to your teammates at college about what happened to you in high school? Have any of them experienced the same thing? Are they empathetic towards towards your efforts or is it something that you just kind of compartmentalize and you've moved on from and don't talk about much?
4: I've talked to a few of my teammates about it and the ones that I have talked to, they are supportive of it because they are female athletes and they know how, how great of a physical advantage that a male body has over a female body. Um, but none of, none of my teammates have had to experience uh, being forced to compete against a biological male.
0: It is a growing phenomenon though. And I think one of the things that, you know, I, I constantly hear people say, I said this earlier, you know, I'll, I'll hear people push back and say, well, don't tell me about two transgender athletes in Connecticut, that's two people in the whole world. And, and, you know, what I say to them constantly is, right, that's two people in Connecticut a few years ago. But the growing number of transgender kids every day across the country tells me that those people are going to want to play sports. So you, you can't look at the country and see what's happening in terms of gender identity generally and say that this isn't going to be a growing threat as the years go by. It is. It's going to be.
3: Well, and let's not assume that just because your particular media source is not covering it doesn't mean it isn't happening. So I'm aware of male athletes competing in girls sports in the states of Hawaii and Alaska, California, Montana, Idaho, New Hampshire. There's two recent lawsuits filed in West Virginia and right. Florida with middle
0: school right. boys. And you know, have- it's not just whether the media is covering it. That's, that's one level. Another level is whether... The young women are brave enough, as Selena was, to come forward. I think that this is happening in a lot of places where people are being told uh, to keep their mouth shut. Um, we heard people say that. We heard uh, there was a, a female weightlifter in New Zealand who was told to keep her mouth shut about Laurel Hubbard. Cynthia, the woman in the video that we showed earlier, the, the um, adult runner from Hawaii and her daughter, We're told, keep your mouth shut for your own safety, for your own reputation. Don't go down this path. So I think it takes a lot of courage, Selena, and I commend you for coming forward because not a lot of, even a lot of people who agree with you would not be brave enough to take this on. They really wouldn't. And so I think it's happening probably a lot more than we know about.
4: Thank you. And yeah, I hope... I hope that by my speaking out other young girls will if they're facing this issue will gain the confidence to, to speak out against their own issues and I know that I did that for for Chelsea and Alana uh, I gave them you know by, by them seeing what I was doing they I gave them the boost of confidence to be able to start doing interviews and start speaking out about this and I hope that this issue will be resolved soon. So no other little girl will have to experience the pain and heartbreak that I had to go through. And that's why I'm so thankful for all of the governors that are starting to pass bills to protect women's sports, because it's just such an important issue. And honestly, Selena,
0: I'm I'm thankful for you. I have three daughters. (laughs) Um, Two of them are about your age in college. Um, I have two daughters who played college athletics and. Uh, you know, quite honestly, I, my daughters are strong girls, but I don't know that they would have been strong enough to withstand the, some of the hate that you've withstood in coming forward. So on behalf of my daughters and all of their friends I, and, and all of the girls who come after you, I, I think what you're doing is incredibly brave. And I, you. I, I honor you for that.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I just want to, uh, you know, re- repeat underscore add a plus one to everything that Jennifer said. Um, Selena, what you're doing is really, really tough. Um, I, I know that you have a great support network and and that you have that drive to compete um, and that you will be fine. But it's it's still a rough road you've decided to take. But uh, hopefully, the fact that you're taking it and, and the public way in which you are speaking out about this and, and filing lawsuits with your att- attorney, Christiana. Um, the way that you're talking about this issue will break through that media silence and will let a lot of other girls know that they're not alone in facing this. Um, that in fact, they're not alone in in looking at the back of, of a competitor mm-hmm. who they really can't hope to um, to to uh, compete with in, in in any meaningful way because of, of biological differences between men and women, which must be just so incredibly frustrating as 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 the great athlete that you are to know that there's. There's this biological barrier um, that that you can't can't transcend no matter how hard you train. So I really commend you, again, um, agree with Jennifer for for coming forward um, and and standing up for these girls, because uh, once one person stands up, as you say, uh, two two girls followed you, and hopefully two more will follow each one of them, and we we can really uh, start to have a national conversation about this issue that's truthful.
4: It'll be a lot easier to fight this issue with the more voices that we have speaking in support of protecting women's sports.
0: Thank you, Selena.
4: Thank you.
0: you,
1: and, and that's probably the end of our, our At the Bar. So thank you so much, Christiana, Selena, and thanks for coming on, sharing your story, your lawsuit. We will keep up with you um, as that lawsuit progresses. At the Bar is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. It's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and iwf.org. And now it's also available to download on all your favorite podcast apps, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and whatever other uh, app or site you use to get your podcasts.
0: And If you want to learn more about Cynthia's story, you can check out Kelsey Bowler's interview with her on the IWF She Thinks podcast, which you can find on the IWF website, iTunes, or any other place you download your podcast. Thanks for joining us at the bar. Hope to see you in two weeks.
1: We'll see you in two weeks at the bar, as Jennifer said can't wait we'll have new new issues to discuss at the intersection of the law politics and culture and we will have a new set of drinks all right thank Cheers. you ladies for joining us at the bar